as a student in uh, high school and college, I struggled with advanced math. I, I was pretty good with, with everyday math, but the world of algebra and geometry and calculus and trigonometry, just the sound of those words can make me break out in a, a cold chills or in beads of sweat. I, seriously, I even navigated the undergraduate degree uh, that I pursued at James Madison around which degree required the least math uh, so it came as a surprise to me this past summer when I was on my uh, annual uh, sermon planning retreat that um, all of a sudden I was, I was studying uh, the lectionary passages for this week and all of a sudden I just had a flashback to my uh, high school geometry teacher, Mr. Lupton. And, uh, and I haven't thought about him in decades. And, and Mr. Lupton, if you ever saw, it's a dated movie, it's a dated reference, but if you ever saw that movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Mr. Lupton was like the teacher in that movie, and he just droned on and on and on about geometry. You could tell it was exciting to him, but it just was not exciting to anyone else. But anyway, I thought about Mr. Lupton and the concept of congruence. And, you know, as in congruent angles, triangles, and, and other shapes, two objects are considered congruent if they have the same shape and size. Uh, we see examples of this all the time. There are multiple examples right here in uh, the sanctuary that I'm sure you're looking for uh, right now. Well, this is not math class, thank goodness. But our text today gets us to this idea of congruence in far more important areas of life, in a far more important area of life. And that, that is the congruence between the faith we profess and how we live our lives. In the journey of faith, we want those two realities to match up. To put it another way, we want the walk of our faith to match up to the talk of our faith. Our text today is from the greatest sermon ever, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the entire Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And one of the things I always tell people that if you could only pick one section of the Bible to read and to study and to, to dive in on other than the story of the cross and the resurrection, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount includes the foundation for every major teaching of Jesus. And so our text is today Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. I'll invite you to, to turn or to launch your Bibles there. And while you're doing that, let me just offer a little bit of backstory. In the text right before ours, uh, we have what is known as the Beatitudes. Now, you don't have to be a, a student of the Bible maybe to be familiar uh, with the concept of the Beatitudes. They start, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And there are nine Beatitudes all in all. And what's so fascinating about this sermon uh, of Jesus as he gathered his, his disciples and those who could hear on the hillside is that he began with the end in mind. He started the whole sermon by describing what a disciple of his would be like, the essence of who they are the marks of grace in their life. And as he gathered them, as he shared these disciples, he says, this is, this is who you are. This is the essence of what it means to be my disciple. And then he makes a really sharp pivot 
to describe what those disciples are like in the world today and back then. And so that's where we come up with our text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It reads like this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we see in the first part of this gospel reading, congruence made visible. Jesus dives right in and he tells them that this is the impact that you're going to have in the world around you. When your walk matches your talk, when you say what you believe, if it is genuine, what this looks like in your life. Maybe we could say, you know, when you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice, right? When you squeeze a Christian, this is the kind of activity that comes out of us. And he uses this everyday, these everyday images of salt and light. Two really easy to understand images. This is not biblical calculus or trigonometry here. Salt had several usages in the day of Jesus. And biblical scholars have, have written for ages about what Jesus might have been communicating here. So, for example, salt has a uh, preservative nature. It's a preservative. Anyone who has ever eaten uh, North Carolina country ham or Virginia country ham knows that salt pre preserves. That's how you, how you keep it somewhat fresh. As Christians live in the world, as we live out the ways of Jesus, we preserve the world around us from moral decay. Salt was also used in the day of Jesus as fertilizer for certain types of soil. So this could be why he said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that image hasn't necessarily um, caught on because not many people want to connect with being fertilizer. You know, they just don't say, hey, I'm, I'm fertilizer in the world. However, when you think about it, fertilizer helps things grow, and Christians help the kingdom of God grow. Salt then was used, as salt is now, to season food and to make things taste better. Has anyone ever been uh, watching their, their diet and went through a stage of eating air-popped popcorn? It's awful. I mean, you may as well eat a styrofoam cup. It's just bad, right? Because the salt won't stick to it. You know, you need a little bit, you need to pop it the right way for salt to stick to it, and it makes it really good. So all these are wonderful images, but it could be trying to complicate the simple reality that Jesus was saying, just as salt is vital for life, 
Christians are vital to this world. Michael Wilkins writes, many believe that Jesus was not pointing to one specific application, but is using it in a broad sense to refer to the vital necessity of life and that Jesus' disciples are vitally important to the world. Disciples of Jesus have, have experienced a transformation in their lives as they've come in contact with the kingdom of heaven. They're now different from the people of the earth, and their presence is necessary as God's means for influencing the world for good. This is how God has chosen to flavor or to season and to influence the world with his grace and his love, and it's through his people being salt in the world. In other words, congruence. When the love and grace of God has touched your heart, therefore, then the love of grace and grace of God comes out of your life. The image of light is another beautiful description of the Christian. It represents God's truth at work in the world. Now, let me be clear. The idea of truth can sometimes be reduced to a set of propositional statements that make up uh, theological and doctrinal documents. God's truth is, is no less than a propositional statement. In other words, this is what we believe. It's no less than that. But it is so much more. The truth that is the light of the world, first of all, is a person. And that, that person is named Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. The understanding of truth is truth lived out, truth wrapped in the skin of loving action, truth that brings about moral and ethical clarity in the world, and truth that seeks to bring men and women out of the darkness and into the light of God's love. So sometimes Christians can be kind of noisy, if they're not careful, with propositional statements about truth. And, and arguing with people who may disagree with them, but rather what, what's uh, the essence of truth in the way Jesus describes it as embodied in him means that we seek to proclaim the truth in the world around us in such a way with a heart of love that men and women are drawn out of darkness and into the light of Jesus. The darkness cannot overcome this kind of light. Sociologist Rodney Stark writes about life in the first century Roman Empire, and that life was absolutely miserable. Devastating plagues caused the healthy to flee other regions. The practices of abortion and infanticide were widespread. It was a very harsh climate for female children. Males were prized in that culture. And it wouldn't have been unusual at all for a, the parents of a baby girl to take their baby girl, their infant, down to the seashore and just let elements take their inevitable toll. In this culture, sexual promiscuity was rampant. It was a morally repugnant culture on every level. Into this moral abyss stepped Christians. Christians who no doubt were spiritual children and grandchildren of some of the men and women sitting on the hill that day when Jesus delivered this sermon. When they stepped in and they became an irresistible influence 
and a force for good and force for truth. They preached against the practice of abortion and infanticide. They counseled their converts from every background to keep their babies and to raise them. They went to the outskirts of town and they rescued baby girls, adopted them, and raised them in the faith. When the plagues hit and the healthy fled to other areas, Christians stayed behind and they actually went in. And many of them died because they contracted the plague. They preached virtue, sexual purity, and faithfulness. They were winsome. The joy of the Lord was evident in their lives. And non-Christians, what Scripture often refers to as pagans, were attracted and converted to the faith. The faith spread from a few thousand in A.D. 40 to approximately 34 million in the 4th century when Constantine finally legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Often people will tell you it was Constantine's decision that made Christianity spread. No, 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 no. It was Christians being salt and light for centuries before that happened. This is exactly what Jesus envisioned. When he said on the hillside that day, you, 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 you're salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Congruence made visible. The walk lining up with all to see with the talk. Before we move on, we have to also see that Jesus gave a warning. He said if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. It may as well be thrown out and trampled. This statement has been a source of debate throughout the ages as well. Strictly speaking, salt is a stable compound, and it can't lose its saltiness. In my view, what Jesus is getting at here is the idea of absurdity. In other words, it's absolutely absurd to think that salt can lose its saltiness, and if it could, then it's, it's worthless. It's just as also absurd to think that if you actually went to the hardware store and bought a light bulb, that you're buying that light bulb for a lamp that you never intend on turning on. Why would you do that? So it's absurd to think that salt can lose its saltiness. It's absurd to think you'd light a lamp and then not let the light shine. It's absurd to think that once your heart has been touched by grace, that you won't seek to be an instrument of grace and love and mercy in the world around. Again, Wilkins writes, Imposter disciples who simply attempt to put on the flavoring of the kingdom life will be revealed... Their salt is only external flavoring. In other words, cultural Christianity, maybe going through the motions without the heart being in line with Jesus. This imposter cannot be made salty again because he or she never had the kingdom life in the first place. So, salt. You'll go home, you'll find some on your table, and it's in the salt shaker, right? Is it meant to stay there? No. It's supposed to come out. You're going to go home and you're going to look at a light switch. Is it meant to stay off? No, you're going to flip it on. It's meant to light the world around you. That's who we are. That's what happens when congruence is at work in our lives and our actions match our talk. So that's congruence made visible. How is congruence made possible? I thought you never asked that question. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus refers to the relationship between the followers, his followers, and the law of God. 
So we have to understand that when Jesus arrived on the scene, there were those who may have thought he was coming to do away with the Old Testament law. This is why the religious leaders and cultural leaders were always uh, around Jesus, hanging around him and asking him questions and poking and, and prodding him. But Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. Actually, he came to fulfill it. And not the tiniest bit of God's law would disappear before the coming of God's kingdom. Now, to some, this might be a little bit of a head-scratcher. Because you might say, well, after all, didn't the law of the Old Testament teach about animal sacrifice for the atonement of sin? And we don't do that anymore. Or there was this interesting episode in the life of Jesus when it was the Sabbath day. And he and his disciples were walking along doing their Jesus and disciple thing. And they walked through a grain field and they were hungry. And so the disciples, maybe not knowing every single bit of what should happen, they started picking grain and eating it. And the religious leaders saw it. And picking grain on the Sabbath, in their view, was a violation of the law. Because they added things to the law. So in their view, it was a violation of the law. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, no. It's not a violation. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And then Jesus went on after that. By the way, that made him really mad. And he went on after that, and he healed a man on the Sabbath. The religious leaders got so mad, they decided then they wanted to kill Jesus. Now, let me put a pause button on that for a second. Anytime a group of people add to what they consider to be the law of God, sometimes in religious language we call this legalism, when you're focused on all the do's and don'ts and you add things to what it means to be a good and, and godly Christian, when people add to the law of God, they're messing around with that which originated with God. They're reducing the beautiful law of God to smaller matters and they almost always look down on people they perceive as less than holy. So be careful with people who add to the law of God. Because legalism and love almost never coexist in the same type of reality. But what does this mean? That Jesus said he, didn't, he came not to do away with it, but he fulfilled it. Jesus came and embody the law of God. So, for example, the sacrificial system was fulfilled in him. No longer were animals needed for sacrifice. He atoned for our sins once and for all when he went to the cross. It also means that the law of God finds its ultimate meaning and its ultimate intent in him. His interpretation of the law is what God intended it to be and how God intended it to be held. So, for example, uh, later in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear statements like, you have heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, you should not be angry with someone. And Jesus is saying here that it's not good enough just to not take somebody's life, but I don't want you to want to murder them in your heart. So the law becomes, sees its intent and fulfillment in him. So now, Jesus drops a bomb on his disciples. He says to them and to us today, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
you know, we may just let that one slide by us, but that messed with, that had to mess with them. The Pharisees and the scribes were sort of like monks or Amish today. They lived and breathed the idea of doing everything possible to keep laws. And those guys on the hillside that day, they had to hear this and they had to think, I'm out. I can't do this. There's absolutely no way I can live up to that. And I think most of us might say the same thing. So we have this incredible dilemma. We need to live in obedience to God if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. It not only pleases the heart of God, but it's also good for us. We need to live in a way that's pleasing to God. But we can't. We don't have the natural capacity to do so on our own. St. Paul was one righteous guy before he met Jesus. He followed all the laws and he was super religious. After he caught a vision of Jesus, he later went on to write, you know what, we've all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. Every one of us, every one of us, we've broken the law of God. So this whole idea of living a congruent life, of having our actions match up in a genuine way with our faith seems impossible. So what do we do? We receive that which has already been done. We receive that which has already been done. It's right here in the text. The righteousness that surpasses that of the religious leaders is the righteousness we receive from Jesus. He's the only one that could ever exceed the righteousness of those. When Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law, think about this for a minute. There are two ways to fulfill a law. Let's say you're parked outside on the street in one of the parking meters, right? They're all over the place. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're just all over the place. That's kind of a joke. You can't miss them, right? Alexandria City has parking law after parking law after parking law. They make the Pharisees look like amateurs when it comes to laws. There are two ways for you to fulfill the parking law. One is to obey them. You know, just obey them. The other is to pay the penalty when you broke it. Right? There's only two ways. Obey the law or pay the penalty when you break them. Either way, you pay the penalty or you obey. The law can no longer condemn you. When it comes to God's law, Jesus did both. Jesus did both. He obeyed the law of God. He alone lived a life of righteousness. There was no transgression in him. And when he went to the cross to die for our sins, he paid the penalty for sin and the lawlessness of humankind. And get this, he offers this righteousness to you. He offers it to you, and that is the cosmic exchange when we open our heart and our life to receive Jesus, is he gives you his righteousness and he takes on your lawlessness. And that's the only way. It's the only way your righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees. Congruence is made possible because it comes from the inside out and not the outside 
in. It comes from Christ in you and spills over into the world that God so deeply loves. And when it does, people see our good deeds and they give praise and honor to God. So here's what I want us to do. Is I, I want to wrap up by showing you as best as I can this little diagram that, that kind of illustrates what this looks like. What inside-out living looks like when, when God is actually working in the life of his disciple. Do we have that image? Can you show that? Okay, so if you take a look at that for a minute, and you take a look at the, that second circle that says the mind, the words, so when someone is actually in that journey of becoming a disciple of Jesus, the words of Jesus' gospel, energized by the Holy Spirit, breaks through the noise breaks through culture, breaks through all the barriers of social relationships. And then what happens is the battle starts to rage in the mind of the would-be disciple about the gospel of Jesus. There's a battle that's going on, but the battle's not for the mind. The battle's actually for the heart. And then that inner circle there, the heart, the heart will then, at some point after you've heard the gospel of Jesus, makes a decision and says either for Jesus or against Jesus. That's at some point in our journey. We hear the gospel, and we begin to, in our heart, the heart will says yes or no to Jesus. As the heart says yes to Jesus, the truth of God's word, energized by the Holy Spirit, penetrates to the heart, brings new life, and sets the person free to be a disciple of Jesus. We shared earlier in song about my, my chains are gone. I've been set free. So you cannot be set free to pursue an obedient life of a disciple of Jesus until you have considered the gospel, until it has penetrated your heart, and then you've said, yes, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Then you're set free from the power of sin to be his disciple. The born-again heart, the fancy word is regenerated, but the born-again heart is the beginning of transformation of the disciple into the image of Jesus, and particularly to love like Jesus loved. The spirit-saturated heart directs the inside-out transformation process of mind, body, and social relations. The disciple then, who continues to say yes to the word of God, is transformed to bear the fruit of the Spirit of God. The disciple is enabled to say yes to God with his or her entire person. You see, someone can try to live a life of righteousness without that heart will saying yes to Jesus, right? And they may live this life that looks like they're following the law, but inside they may have attitudes that are so far from Jesus that it, 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 he wouldn't even recognize that. That's what the whole idea about salt losing its saltiness, the absurdity there. But when Jesus has your heart and he, he starts to take up residence and the Holy Spirit flows through your life, then it begins to move outward into, into f the fruit of the Spirit, salt and light in the world around us. It's inside out. So we have a response. We have to say yes. Not just coming to Jesus for the first time, but we have the opportunity to say yes to Jesus every day 
as we say yes in the everyday journey of life. Congruence, action that flows from a heart changed by Jesus, made possible by his life given for us, in us, and through us. Let me, I want to close today, um, and this is going to be our closing time of prayer. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes, if you don't mind. And I'd just like us to consider a, a gentle question. Is your life congruent? Do the actions and attitudes of your life line up with the faith that you profess? Some of you today may say, you know, I'm in a good place. To be sure, I struggle at times, but in general, my faith and actions line up by the good grace and power of God. Then your prayer today is to give God the glory and to continue walking in grace and humility. Some of you may say, you know, this is a real struggle. And I need help and prayer. Say a new yes to Jesus today. Ask him to give you the strength to win the battle over incongruence. Ask him to forgive you when you have failed him. And ask him to do his work of aligning your life to his. Commit today to congruence by his power and not yours. Some of you may be in that first wrestling match with God. And you've yet to become a disciple of Jesus. You've heard the gospel. You know Jesus came to save you. But you're struggling to be for Jesus with your entire life. Will you say yes to him today? I promise you. I promise you. He will give you all you need to trust. I'm going to read our closing prayer as lyrics from this great hymn. And as I read them, some of you may be tempted to start humming the tune, but I just want to ask you to hear the words in light of our conversation today. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. As in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold over my being absolute sway. Filled with thy spirit, Till all can see, Christ only always living in me. I think that's what he meant by salt and light. Amen.